Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Hello. This week, standing in for Andy, is Ryan of Movie John and the I Saw It in a Movie podcast. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tessa. Hello, Sam. Uh, Thanks for having me on Monkey. Thanks so much for coming on. I've been really excited for this episode ever since I pitched it to you because this is something that's near and dear to my heart. We are focusing on those Westerns on our lists this week. Westerns are a core, if controversial, part of U.S. film canon. They dominated the box office in the mid-20th century and provided audiences with iconic cinematography, audacious action sequences, tense standoffs, and romantic sceneries. We can see the legacy of the Western and contemporary pop culture from The Power of the Dog to Strange New Worlds to The Mandalorian, science fiction, romance, anything, any genre that you can think of probably has some tied to the Western in some vehicle or another. So in this episode, Ryan awkwardly rides a horse, Sam watches the Western and far superior version of Succession, and I buy dynamite instead of bread. So just to kind of get us starting off on a good foot before we we talk about the films we watched this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about defining exactly what a Western is. So, Ryan, how would you define a Western? Is this something that you kind of just have to see it to know what it is? Or do you think that there are actually conventions that define the genre? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a both setting particulars and and genre particulars that sort of define what a Western is. You know, it's it's not quite as abstract as as horror, but, uh, you know, most westerns you know take place in the western united states you know in the let's say mid 1800s to mid 1900s early 1900s you know although there are westerns that then become translated into other cultures and places like there's australian westerns and obviously there are westerns that we'll talk about that are shot in europe but still set in the united states i should say the united states and mexico because that, that is often a key part of the Western genre, and then it, it tends to focus on, you know, individualistic male protagonists, which, which again, like, you know, the way that a genre evolves, that definition changes, but, you know, it, it often comes into what I would call, like, settler narratives, you know, very much, you know, the, the, the frontier as an idea is probably the thing I would like strongest to the Western. Anytime you have a frontier, it's speaking back to the Western genre, even if it is like, you know, set in space, like if, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars are both great examples of space Westerns. I think, I mean, you get from Star Wars, the final frontier, which is like a very Western concept. But yeah, there's also, I think, this idea of like the subordination of nature by civilization. There is kind of like a lot of those themes as well. There's this idea of I I don't know if I've ever actually seen a Western that uses the term manifest destiny, but like there are a lot of vibes from that, like this idea that we are supposed to go out into the wilderness and bring civilization and conquer it and make our own lives out there. So there's a lot of like those types of attitudes towards it. What do you think, Sam? What How would you define a Western? <laughs> are there any tropes that come to mind? I don't like it usually. Usually? Is that, <laughs> is that a trope? I don't know. No, I I think Ryan did a pretty good job of defining it. But uh, the thing that I would, 
you know, expand on is talk about how the Western, one of the most important elements of Westerns is nostalgia for something that may or may not have actually existed. Because, of course, you know, and I'll be talking about this with Yellowstone. I mean, things are still happening out in the West, believe it or not. And that's what Taylor Sheridan's most interested in. But when we think of the Western genre, we're thinking of 19th century, really. And, you know, like to to cite all my favorite Westerns are not Westerns. <laughs> movies in the in the sense of the term but um so uh the eagles is uh i believe second album is is the one that has uh desperado and doolin dalton on it it's basically a, a western concept album that was kind of their identity in the beginning before joe walsh and hotel california they were basically like making and making albums that could have been westerns like if you just you know made them into like a rock you know movie it would be a western and it's that same sense of nostalgia that drives that album in particular and i like that there's something about that idea which is flawed of course because it's got all the manifest destiny issues attached to it but i think that's what the draw is the draw to that time and place. And I, I think that's probably very specific. A lot of people, most people probably don't have good associations with that. So yeah, I guess it's this romanticized thing that doesn't really exist. But it drives a lot of American pop culture, especially. Like I liked how you mentioned, Ryan, that this isn't just an American genre anymore, but I feel like the Western, more than almost any other genre, was definitely born in the U.S. because of the way that U.S. history sort of played out over the the late 19th, early 20th century, like you said. And so it is interesting that a lot of the tropes and archetypes, you can still see it playing out both in pop culture narratives and in even just like political narratives or cultural narratives. Like you see all sorts of references to this, like you said, Sam, nostalgic time that may or may not have ever actually existed. Yeah, and as as the Western developed as a genre of fiction in the late, you know, like the 1880s, 1890s, um, you know, it's like post-Civil War, the, a lot of the people writing about it were people who were there. So, you know, like uh, John Ford knew Wyatt Earp, like he met him when he was a young man and talked to him and heard about, you know, the battle, the, the gunfight at the OK Corral directly from the guy who fought it, you know, whether or not the version that Earp told him was the real version is basically that's how the Western is born because you have these people who were there and experienced some of it and they're already romanticizing it within a decade or two of it having happened. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also, these are places you can go. I've been to Deadwood, you know, it's like these things really happened, but I, you know, it's like there are versions of what happened, right? You know, like they're always, as you said, probably romanticized to some extent. Or even mythologized, I would say, too. I mean, like when you think about like the sheriff and the are, drifter. Are we talking and... about Liberty Valance today? <laughs> no, we're not talking about we're Liberty not talking Valance. About Liberty today. Valance? Uh, like it feels like one. an oversight, but yeah, like, but I think that like there is this, like, you get the gunfighter and, you know, like there are like these archetypes that 
become almost mythologies of the American West and of individualism and like, you know, having a code of honor in a lawless land. Like all of those are like very familiar tropes that I feel like almost have their own mythology by the time you get to like the 40s and 50s when the majority of classic Westerns are being made. I mean, I mentioned it a little bit already, but like, what are some of the legacies of the Western in U.S. cinema? Like, what genres can we directly connect to the Western? I think it'd be easier to say which ones don't. (laughs) (laughs) Period romances. Well, you get Western romances, though. Well, yeah. It's a whole like (laughs) subgenre. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's. I've actually been like really connecting westerns with noir recently. I don't know why those two have never it's never occurred to me that those two things are related until like probably the past year, but I've been getting a lot of vibes from westerns that remind me of some of the noir, especially like the noir detective, like it really reminds me a lot of like the gunslinger and like the idea of having a code of honor that maybe doesn't follow the law, but is like the right thing to do. You know, like it's just, it it very much the character exploration, the darkness that's in a lot of Westerns as well. I think that that's a really interesting comparison to make between those two genres. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of directors who worked in both, um, you know, who made noirs and who also made Westerns in the forties and fifties. Anthony Mann is a director that comes to mind. Uh, his movie, the Furies with Barbara Sandwick, like, straight up feels like a noir that's set in the West. And it's just, it's about her trying to hold on to this ranch that her family owns. And, but all of the things that happen are, you know, equal parts Western, equal parts, you know, sort of noir melodrama. You know, anytime you have that sort of lone gunfighter feel, you know, you're, you're, you're talking Westerns and, you know, the ways that, you know, of course, famously like Kurosawa takes the Western and makes it samurai movies and then from there, the you know Italians sort of take the samurai movies and set them back in the West. And so you have this sort of cross-proliferation through genre, through different parts of the world, kind of interpreting the archetypes and the tropes kind of in their own way for their own culture. And so, yeah, the, the ripple effect of the Western is just gigantic. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned directors who did you know, both essentially. And there were plenty of actors as well. Uh, John Mm Huston will come up a little bit later when we talk about Yellowstone, but you know, he shows up in noir and Western. Exactly. It's almost impossible not to do a Western. I think for a while there was no actor that hadn't been in a Western. I mean, obviously you get people like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, whose like careers are, are made off of the Western, but like people like, Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, like all of these people were in Westerns, even if like that's not what we primarily remember them for. I really think a lot of people, um, probably older people who grew up with these films, a lot of them probably do remember Jimmy Stewart as primarily uh, a Western actor. I know Gary Cooper is primarily seen as a Western actor. I just grew I up see with them him in different as, films, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think of them both as Capra folks. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> And, you know, people in our generation, you know, I always like to remind people that if you like John Carpenter movies, you like Westerns because that dude has made literally pretty, literally every movie in his filmography is a Western in some way, shape or form, because even though he's never made an actual Western with actual horses, you know, his favorite is Howard Hawks. Assault on Precinct 13 is a Rio Bravo remake. 
Yeah, you know, it's really funny. So you mentioned another one, Howard Hawks. Like, I, all of these people, I've seen their early stuff, but I can't bear to watch their westerns. I'm just not. <laughs> you're like, like the, you're I like the lone the, anti-western voice I, on this podcast, except for I the, think you liked the thing that you watched. <laughs> well, I did, but there's a specific reason for that. But I mean, it's really interesting that. It is such a clear-cut genre in some ways that I can say, ugh. But in other ways, it bleeds over into every other genre. So really, it's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the first film. I really like that this was a complete accident. I did not plan it this way. But I really like that we all picked things that kind of come from different periods of the western and different parts of the genre i think that that's going to give us a really good exploration of different things so let's start with the first one ryan you watched fort apache from 1948 but before we get into that what is your personal experience with westerns i did not grow up with direct westerns knowledge unless you count back to the future of part three because <laughs> uh, my dad was more of the like Torah, 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 Bullet, Top Gun. Like that was my dad's genre was sort of like vehicle-based action. <laughs> yes, yeah, same. So, you know, based on Back to the Future Part 3, I always liked the idea of the Western. And so I had a couple, it took a couple tries before I really keyed into it, and especially before I got to classic Westerns. So when the James Mangold, uh, Christian Bale, Russell Crowe remake of 310 to Yuma came out in theaters, I was like, oh, I should go see this because it's two actors I like in a Western and we don't get to see Westerns in the theater anymore. So I should just go. And I enjoyed it. And I was like, cool. Like, it's glad that we're getting this sort of modern update on it. And then, you know, going through Quentin Tarantino stuff and, you know, Hateful Eight and and him referencing a lot of westerns uh you know even as far back as kill bill there's you know more coning tracks on the soundtrack that are from famous westerns that now i've seen and been like oh yeah right quentin tarantino steals from good movies not like he rescues cool ideas from bad movies <laughs> so that was another way to another sort of foray into like the spaghetti westerns and then seeing you know the uh the good the bad and the ugly trilogy but really, you know, it kind of comes back to two things in, how, in terms of like how I actually started getting really into classic Westerns. You know, so there's the the George Lucas to John Ford pipeline. Where you spend enough time watching and reading about and thinking about Star Wars, eventually you're like, OK, I have to watch The Searchers because it's one of Lucas's touchstone movies, you know, and for all the guys in that generation you know i think there's a, a more clear line between like hitchcock and spielberg than there is between ford and spielberg but it's a hundred percent there like but the searchers is, is a it's a tough watch but like watching that movie made me appreciate aspects of attack of the clones a lot more because there's so much that lucas does with mood and emotional filmmaking and like embedding things in the visual storytelling more than in the dialogue. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that in The Searchers. So once I saw The Searchers and I was like, oh, this is a movie that like I can watch and understand. I don't need to like read a bunch of other stuff to explain to me why it's good. Then I was like, okay, I need to watch more John Ford stuff. And then I took a class at a local art house theater on film music. 
and film scores because I love film scores. I have a little bit of a music background, but not deep enough to like, you know, get super into it. But one of the movies that we watched in the theater for that class was High Noon because High Noon has a score that is all based around this one song. And so then learning more about the way that music is used in the genre and with High Noon specifically being so much about blacklisting and McCarthyism, it was like it like a light bulb went off where I was like, oh yeah, like Westerns, yeah, they're about horses and cowboys and all and manifest destiny and all that stuff. But they're also about the time that they're made in. And I think that's something that's really unique to the genre, at least for me, that like watching that stuff, it really jumps out in a in a way that I feel like it's harder for me to sometimes see in a noir or in you know, beyond the generic, like, all right, it's the 1940s. Like, we're all freaked out about a lot of stuff in the 1940s that's causing all this anxiety. You know, but it's really, you know, I, there's a famous review of Jaws that's like, oh, yeah, clearly this is about Watergate. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, you know, there's, I, I feel like the current crop of film writers, and this is not me dragging them, I'm including myself in this. It's, we don't talk about subtext as much. You know, we don't go sort of out on that limb and say, you know, not that, oh, this movie's an allegory where this person represents this other person. And, you know, it's not a one-to-one mapping. But I think the Western, like I said, feels unique in that I can watch Red River or I can watch, you know, My Darling Clementine, which are two movies that came out right after World War II. And I'm like, oh, I can see how My Darling Clementine is, ties into Ford's experience during the war in a way that I feel like is it's just not as evident for me in a movie that is set in the same time period that it's made. Yeah, I think the Western went, lends itself a lot to metaphor, mainly because of how archetypal and, and mythological it is. Did you also see the, the 2010 remake of True Grit by the Coen brothers? Mm-hmm. I feel like that came out around the same time as, as the remake of 310 to Yuma as well. And that was kind of part of like a resurgence there for a little while of of some classic westerns. Uh, yeah, I I like the Coen Brothers True Grit more than the original True Grit, and and again, I think that's in part it speaks to my sensibilities more in terms of like a modern movie going audience. But also, I wasn't expecting a lot from it, and then just absolutely fell for the story. And you know, Jeff Bridges gives an amazing performance in that. That might be the only Western that I feel like Jeff Bridges does a better job than John Wayne. And I don't say that very often because I just think John Wayne is such a singular actor. It's hard to even think about how someone would redo a John Wayne character. So it helps that it's based on a book. Mm -hmm. I I think it's interesting, too. You mentioned Attack of the Clones a a minute ago. It was Emily St. James, I believe, who um, wrote something just recently about it. And how the prequel trilogy is that classic filmmaking in in the way that you were describing, Ryan, until like the last half hour of Revenge of the Sith, or the last hour even, when it becomes a much more contemporary filmmaking. That really stuck with me, and I'm I'm it made me a little bit more excited to watch those again at the end of the year. And so you've you've kind of tapped into that. The other thing that you mentioned that I thought that that struck me. So we've been discussing for for another for another podcast that that we're excited about. We've been talking about the Wachowskis and and the Matrix, and you know talking about 
you know, more modern movies that are built on allegory and 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 of course those definitely are as well as the 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 new one that came out last year but it made me think about that cuz you know film criticism was something i had to you know when you when you work to specialize in academia you have to leave things behind and and coming from an american studies background you know where my my favorite professors were film people it just reminds me of some of that stuff and 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 when you mention it, when you bring it back up, I think about that. That I can see the lack of it there, mm-hmm. and and I think I think that's a. You still haven't convinced me to watch more westerns, but it's a really good thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It it really is interesting. I I think that there's a lot to that. Let's go ahead and talk about the monkey that you did this week, Fort Apache. Can you? Tell us how you came to this movie, what the movie's about. Yeah, I've been trying to watch as many John Ford movies as possible. I got a few years ago, there's a huge box set of his uh, time at Fox Studios. It was like 300 bucks when it came out, but because they're all DVDs, I was able to grab it for a lot cheaper than that on eBay. So I've been, my project this year has been to watch as many John Ford movies as possible. This is the third in or th- sorry this is the first in his quote unquote cavalry trilogy all involving John Wayne uh in a lead role uh this is the last one on that list that I've seen just by happenstance cuz when I started doing John Wayne stuff last fall or John Ford stuff last fall I was kind of just cherry picking stuff I thought was interesting and so this was the one I hadn't gotten to yet but I wanted to complete uh the trilogy the other two are uh, she wore a yellow ribbon, which is fantastic, and Rio Grande, which is probably my least favorite of the three total, but still good. She wore a yellow ribbon is very good. That's that is a movie from my childhood, right there. So tell us a little bit about the plot of the film. What is it about? Yeah, so it, it's after the Civil War. Uh, you have uh, Kirby York, who is John Wayne, uh, is expected to replace Lieutenant Thursday, played by Henry Fonda at Fort Apache, which is this like isolated U.S. cavalry post. You know, accompanying Thursday is his daughter, Philadelphia, played by a grown-up Shirley Temple. You know, so there's a... The, the, the two main plots are sort of the struggle between John Wayne and Henry Fonda's character and their approach basically to American imperialism. And then the subplot is about Shirley Temple falling in love. And so this really does tie into all those manifest destiny ideas that we were talking about. And, you know, this Thursday name drops a ton of Civil War generals in this. You know, everybody from Bedford Forrest uh, at one point, unfortunately, but like he drags Robert E. Lee at another point talking about how he's like overrated. And so it really is set in this very particular time and place. And, you know, again, like the. Thursday has this sort of like old school, like we've studied Genghis Khan and Napoleon and we know all these tactics and that like, that's how we're going to subdue the frontier, you know, and John Wayne, who's been out there a bit longer is like, that's not how this works. You got to look along the horizon for the dust clouds that the Apaches are throwing up behind them. And you have to react to that and you have to protect the people. And, you know, he's just trying to get across this whole different mentality. And their main conflict, the main person that they're coming into conflict is 
is Cochise, who is a, you know, a real historical figure. So you have these two fictional characters coming up against this real historical figure. And it sort of marks a turning point in Ford's career where suddenly you have Native American characters that have names and personalities and aren't just stereotypes. They're still very stereotypical, to be clear. But for 1948, this is a, it's a big step forward. And so watching that unfold is... It's just really interesting, and it does make it feel like Ford is sort of evolving in a new direction. And again, this is after his experience in World War II, in which you know he was making propaganda, but directly involved in combat. Like he was at the Battle of Midway, filming it while it was happening. And so I think you can start to see, you can start to see that sort of change his point of view, and you know his relationship with. Native Americans in in the movies that he's making continues to evolve after this point until you get to Cheyenne Autumn, which is his like attempted apology to all of the Native American stereotypes that he had used throughout his career. You know, and again, we're going to talk about this in another segment as to the problematic nature of stuff. But this sort of is a big piece of the John Ford puzzle in terms of the way that he approaches the genre and how that changes over time. Cause he's been making Westerns at this point for 20 years. So it, it's really interesting. It's a really good John Wayne performance, seeing him and Henry Fonda as two very different characters facing off and having all these discussions. It sort of, you know, presages the kind of relationship that he has with Jimmy Stewart in the man who shot Liberty Valance, you know, and, and then there's a bunch of comedy stuff in this movie uh so well it is Shirley Temple so you have to have some comedy (laughs) yeah and I mean she's the source of some of it but most of it comes from them training trying to train these civil war soldiers who were just kind of like hey you're a body in a field with a rifle walk that direction to like ride horses and stuff and there's a lot of you know John Ford's probably second biggest preoccupation of the Irish and Irish immigrants to America is sort of woven in in that subplot of like trying to train these guys of basically how to be cowboys. And so there's a lot of comedy uh, in there. And I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the John Agar, who plays Shirley Temple's love interest was also her real life husband at the time. Uh, His character's name is Mickey O'Rourke. There's a lot of, it's interesting when you start looking at Westerns too, especially classic Westerns, because you get a lot of like, um, you get a lot of Irish stereotypes, but then you also get like them trying to like actually talk about like some of the issues facing, especially Irish immigrants, a lot of whom immigrated West because it was so hard to to live in, on the East Coast. But then you also get a lot of like, studio actors who just like that's all they do is is Mm -hmm. westerns like ward bond especially who's who's i know is a big uh character in this film like he'd also been doing westerns with ford and with other people for like years and years and years so it's it's really interesting to to watch these people evolve over time like you said yeah and and ward bond especially tends to play like he's one of those guys that like he plays sort of the same character in every movie but he's just so charming and fun doing it that like it, it's not really a problem. But then, you know, you see like the fifth one in a year and you're like, oh, right. I remember this guy. Like, I know how this is kind of going <laughs> to gonna play out. Head cannon. They're all actually the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Ward Bond is in 
I believe is in John Ford and John Wayne's collaboration on The Quiet Man as well, which is directly about Ireland, but also kind of about Mm -hmm. Irish immigration as well. What did you think of Grown Up Shirley Temple in this? There's not a lot of films with her as an adult, but this is definitely one of them that I, I think about her a lot in this film. Yeah, this was the first time, certainly the first time I had seen her sort of grown up. And I, I think she does a great job. I'm, you know, I'm sure her personal life, just based on the fact that there aren't a lot of films with her as an adult, I'm sure her personal life is much more tra- tragic than I am aware of. And I meant to look up some more stuff uh, before we recorded, but didn't get that chance to. But as part of, as far as her performance in this movie goes, uh, she's great. She's absolutely delightful. She holds her own, uh, both with Henry Fonda and John Wayne, you know, and what more could you ask for? <laughs> Those are two really strong personalities to play against. So that that completely makes sense. You know, it, it's a black and white movie, which I think Ford was just more comfortable with. You know, he in his his dry, sarcastic way always called it more challenging because like the blocking and staging and all that, like you can't make up for anything with color. Like everything has to be exactly the way that needs to be to be on there you know this is one of the i think 10 or 11 times that he shot in monument valley so of course you know you have great great vistas throughout this is one of those movies where if it were any other filmmaker you'd be like this would be like a career high and for like ford it's probably not even in his top five great movies yeah but it but it's still you know I found it very entertaining. Again, like it's not one I would necessarily recommend people start with. But if you've seen a couple of Ford Westerns, this is definitely not one to miss. Because like I said, I found it just really entertaining. And then also just super interesting seeing him sort of like piece these different things that he's been playing with together. You know, you can see every time he collaborates with John Wayne, it's a slightly different character. And, you know, every time he as this cow. Calvary trilogy evolves, you know, like the way that he depicts the US military sort of changes over time. And in here, like they look pretty incompetent. Like this movie is sort of based on the Fetterman fight and the Battle of Little Bighorn. So it's like really when the military shifts from fighting the South to fighting Native Americans. And just, you know, seeing Ford be kind of critical of that if you know how to look for it, is is also just super interesting. You haven't seen Ford Apache. I haven't, but just to briefly return to Shirley Temple. Um, <laughs> no, because it, it something, well, when you said that, uh, you were talking about her, something struck me. And so she retired from acting in 49, you know, the next year. But... You know, you said the thing about Shirley Temple as an adult, Tessa, and it reminded me, and I had to look. So the year before, she made the the adult Shirley Temple movie that I enjoy, which is The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, which has Cary right. Grant. And so that's right. the year before. And then, so it's really interesting to hear, you know, this 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 person we associate with very different roles doing these things and adding that you know, those dimensions to a movie. That's something that makes me more interested in seeing a film. Although apparently this is not one of the go-to ones. I mean, like, I think it's just interesting that she's in a Western at all, because Mm -hmm. like, I mean, if I were, I mean, I, 
I grew up watching westerns, but I also grew up going to my grandmother's house and she always had like a Shirley Temple film on, but you know, it was always her as a child. So like, I think I was much older before I even realized that she did movies as an adult. And so, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see her like, at least before she, right before she retired, playing around with genre in her acting career. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a ton of experience with her as a kid other than like seeing like commercials for like whatever VHS box that they were selling on cable. <laughs> so like I, there's like a minute and a half of Shirley Temple that I'm deeply familiar with. <laughs> um, but I don't know that I've seen a full movie with her in it besides this off the top of my head, unless it was like, you know, we watched it in elementary school and I just don't really remember it. The one that always seemed to be on TV was, and I'm trying to figure out if I know the title of it, not even sure I do, but it's the one where like her dad goes to war or something and like he's got like amnesia or something like that. I don't know. I've seen the end of that movie like a dozen times. I don't know why. It was just what was on TV along with the VHS commercials. It's just interesting to me to compare her as an adult to a child because when she was a child, she's very much that Mary-Kate Ashley Olsen, like, precocious, like, they're they're making her play younger than she actually is, like, type of child actor. Very charismatic. Very if you And if you enjoy that, she makes some really great movies when she's a kid if you're into that particular genre. But it does seem like later on before she retired that she was looking to really break out of those roles. And I don't know if her retirement had anything to do with the fact that, I mean, I feel like a John Ford movie is successful, but I don't know what the box office was like in 1948 either. So, you know, I don't know if this is just something she decided to not do anymore or if people were trying to typecast her or what. Cause I don't remember her character in Ford Apache being like that. Like she seems like a pretty, self-possessed type of person in Fort Apache. But I think this is a perfect segue into my next question, which are, are Westerns inherently problematic as a genre? Because I know, Ryan, you mentioned in Fort Apache, there are, even though there's, this is a leap forward for the Western, there are obviously a lot of stereotypes, especially about the Apache nation in Fort Apache. I I distinctly remember my other memory of Fort Apache is John Wayne saying something like very, very racist about, about the Apache. So, you know, what, how do we engage with this genre, which is clearly very beloved and clearly has a lot to offer when the genre is based on, in a lot of ways, the subjugation of indigenous people and, and in some ways, the extinction of indigenous people. Yeah, and and to me, it's it's sort of what lens you you bring to it, you know. And I'm just going to talk about my own, just my own personal kind of views and, and take on it. You know, I think that the answer to the question is: Are westerns inherently problematic? Is the western genre inherently problematic? Is is yes? I mean, definitely. But I think it's you know it's your awareness as a viewer that 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 is baked into it, you know, and that's, you kind of have to go in eyes wide open, you know, and I wouldn't, you know, if somebody was like, Hey, I, I, you know, I really can't handle just the, the racism in Fort Apache, like I said, which is a big step forward, but still, you know, incredibly racist movie. 
you know, if that's something that you can't handle, I'm not going to say you need to get over that. You know, because that's we all take things in different ways. And there are genres and kinds of movies that I can't watch because they hit buttons for me. But to me, it's sort of that awareness and engaging with it. And to me, I find it really enlightening to see how we've mythologized ourselves because, you know, we were talking earlier about what defines a Western, the Western sort of a lot of Western movies act like the Western United States is the sort of primordial place untouched by civilization at the very least. But we know for a fact there were people there, they had civilization. It didn't look like Western civilization, but it was civilization nonetheless. And, you know, even by the time Americans got there, it had been transformed by the Spanish colonialization in South and Central America, that things that had sort of made their way up. Like, you know, horses are not indigenous to the Americas. And so, like, we were encountering indigenous peoples that had already been changed by forces of colonialization, even if they had never met another, met a white person before. So, you know, I think that whole settler narrative on top of, like, political manifest destiny stuff, it is all baked into the Western. And, you know, I think even as we talk about neo-Westerns or Westerns set after this time period, you know, it's just like, even living here on the East Coast, you know, I'm living on land that was stolen by white people from indigenous people. And, you know, it's it's a fact of American life. And so for the most American of genres, it's going to be baked in. And it's it's a matter of, you know, how I think you approach it today as a viewer, because, again, it is so a part of so many films in this genre, whether they specifically deal with it or not, because there are a lot of Westerns that don't really deal with Native Americans directly, but it's still in the background. Right. Or it's still this idea, like you said, that this is this is unoccupied land. Well, is it, though? Like, it, it is in the context <laughs> right. of this film, but, like, was it really? That, those are always sort of the questions you have to ask. I also find myself asking these questions in other films and other genres that are clearly influenced by Westerns. So, for example, something like Star Trek, I think, actually does especially the original series actually does bring some of these problematic attitudes toward into its own exploration of what is not civilized and what is what is the final frontier who's living there already you know like those types of attitudes as well so it's interesting that you have to kind of like think about it when you're watching something like Fort Apache but you also have to think about like how does the framework when you take it and you put it in another genre or you apply it to something else, what does it bring with it as well? I think that's a really interesting question to ask as you're watching. You know, it's it, so I, uh, years ago and I put it away, but I wrote a, I wrote a novel and it was, it, the idea was it's basically our world, but slightly different in some ways. And the big change I made was, horses were actually indigenous to America. And so what would it have been like? How would it have changed warfare in Europe if they had been introduced? Like uh, first person to like get horses, way. right? Yeah. yeah. That is interesting. It, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also think, to go back to the Eagles for a second, uh, the last song on Hotel California, which is toward the end, right, is The Last Resort. And it's a song about how, it's a song about westward expansion. And, you know, that that romanticized idea of the West and how beautiful it is and how it's, you know, paradise. And so the last line of the song is, if you call someplace paradise, kiss it goodbye. Basically saying, 
you know, that the Christians who went out and colonized the West are going to heaven the same way. And, and that's a very Don Henley thing to do, which really fits in. Because my first Western was Dances with Wolves. <laughs> and you want to talk, you want to talk about somebody who, who is, is really got a very specific view on what's wrong with things. And they're not wrong. But I don't know that they're right either. That's Kevin Costner. And I've definitely been very, I've been trying very hard lately, although it's been happening off and on for years now, to really try and figure out what his deal is. Like, I'm so afraid. I told Tessa the other day, we're going to have to go back and watch it because she's never seen it. But I have to go back and watch it. And I'm so scared. I feel like you should be. But my, well, my preliminary (laughs) take on a rewatch is I really think he's trying to do something that we would classify as the right thing. And, you know, this is the other thing about the Western genre, though. You know, as somebody who's knee-deep in this because of what I do, I think the Western is always going to be concerned with these issues that America, every single element of America, especially the ones you want to romanticize, are there are issues of being terrible to other people baked into it, whether it's slavery or treatment of indigenous people or Asian immigrants on the railroad. You know, like it, it you can't really tell any of these stories without getting into that. And that's what fuels so much of the the bad feelings today, because to to admit that is to like say we can't just enjoy Westerns. Well clearly you can. You both enjoy them. You know, it's like, but the, but you know, uh, a lot of people. It's challenging that mythology. It does. But, you know, West, we, you know, we're talking about Westerns today, but you could apply it to just about anything. You can't hardly enjoy anything that, that talks about quote unquote America in any kind of specific way without acknowledging something bad that's happened. That's just the way it is. Right. And I'm not saying accept it and move on, but I'm definitely saying don't not accept it, you know, but it's it's important to situate these things. And the Western's very important in that, you know. All right. So <laughs> was I going somewhere with that? I don't know. I don't know. But I, don't know. I, I liked it. I thought it was good. It was it was poignant. And it's actually a good segue into my segment, which is I, I watched The Bullet for the General, which is a 1966 Zapata Western, which is a subset of the spaghetti Westerns. <laughs> what's a what's a spaghetti Western? So, is that um, where they eat <laughs> pasta? I think in some <laughs> of them they do, actually. I think that the spaghetti Western is really interesting because like you said, Ryan, it's sort of an import of like an American genre over, over to, to Kurosawa and then back over to, to Italy, but still set in the Americas, this one specifically in Mexico. But now Tessa, I ask disingenuously because I know the answer is a spaghetti Western the thing that's happening in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's going to go make those movies? Yes, yes, exactly. For somebody who doesn't know what those are. Yeah, exactly. That is what the actor whose name I can't remember, played by uh, Leo DiCaprio, yeah. is, is doing in that film. But yeah, so spaghetti Western 
really, those were made in the mid-60s to early 70s. They were a genre of film that was popularized by Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dollars. His whole Dollars trilogy really started this off. But in a lot of ways, it is a movement to work to deconstruct the classic Western, but then to also reconstruct it into something else. They really play around a lot with tropes. They play a lot around a lot of, with character and with motivations. And a lot of them are much more violent than the classic Westerns were allowed to be. Um, I think one of the things I put in my notes is because these were made in Italy, they weren't bound by the same codes that filmmakers were in the U.S. They still had a mainly a U.S. audience. They couldn't like you know, just break all the rules, but they could experiment with some things, especially when it came to like morality tropes that the U.S. couldn't exactly do. But they were very popular at this particular time, the Spaghetti Westerns, but the Zapata Western, which is not a subgenre I was really familiar with before watching A Bullet for the General, it's, it had been on my list forever because I wanted to watch a Zapata Western and a bullet for the general is really the first one that was made, but it's a subsection of the spaghetti western, still made in Italy, but it's specifically about the time period during the Mexican Revolution. A bullet for the general. It's a 1966 western film directed by Damiano Damani and stars Gian Maria Volanti, who most people will know from the Fistful of Dollars and the whole Dollars trilogy, and Lou Castell, Klaus Kinski, and Martine Beswick. These were none of these actors were people that I knew before this. I think I've seen Martine Beswick in a couple of things, but and of course I've seen Volante in uh, Sergio Leone's films as well. But so I don't know how many people in the U.S. really know a lot about the Mexican Revolution, but it's, it was an extended sequence of armed regional conflicts in Mexico from approximately 1910 to 1920, so around World War One time period. The, it sort of ended when the Revolutionary Army took over the government and put own, their own government in place, and there was a lot of fallout from that. But this film follows two protagonists, El Chuncho Munoz, who's played by Volante, who is a gunrunner and a bandit for the revolutionaries, and Bill Tate, played by Lou Castell, who's an American counter-revolutionary contract killer hire, hired to kill the general of the Revolutionary Army. So the two of them meet during a train robbery at the beginning of the film when Tate ingratiates himself into Chuncho's gang in order to infiltrate the organization so he can get close to the general. This, by the way, this sounds like mob movies, like the gangster movies from the 30s. It's very much about bandits and their right. role in the, in the revolution. I think you just described the plot of White Heat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is definitely a, a trope that's really familiar, I think, in a lot of mob movies later, in a lot of films that are just about, like, uh, I mean, e you could even say Fast and Furious is kind of, in the beginning, is about this, because it's, yeah. it's Brian <laughs> infiltrating a gang in order to, like, understand, like, what they're doing. So, yeah. Welcome it's... to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we make everything about Fast and Furious. <laughs> I mean, Fast and Furious <laughs> is, like, a... It's a it is a proto film in some ways. It, it draws on so many things. Yeah, I mean I think that there's a lot you can say about the Zapata Western and the way that it plays out in Bullet for the General because 
it does follow in the mold of the spaghetti western in that you have multiple protagonists and they all have different agendas. So that's like a big hallmark of Leone's, for an example, in the Dollars trilogy. You get that here, except for it's two characters. And one of them, the American uh, Tate, who Chuncho calls Nino throughout the film, which I just thought was that was great. Instead of calling him the kid, it's just Nino. He's obsessed with money. He's like this very stereotypical American. He's the gringo of the film. He's obsessed with like getting this job done so that way he can get paid. And then you have uh, El Chuncho, who is really having an identity crisis because he is a revolutionary at heart, but he's also a bandit and he loves like the bandit lifestyle. And so you get a lot of like back and forth between the two of them. There's a lot about male friendship here as well because they slowly become friends. And so you get this trope of like the person who's there to infiltrate goes too deep. Like he understands like the the, the people that he's infiltrating now. But it doesn't it does a very good job of still making it very clear whose side each of these protagonists are on. And it starts to very gently in some ways and not so gently in others interrogate what this revolution was about. And how the U.S., which never, we never see the U.S. in this. The only American character is the Tate character. But it's very much about how the U.S. interfered in the Mexican Revolution because the U.S. was very concerned about things like revolutions in Mexico. And also, you know, this could be a foothold for the Germans and like, you know, all of these types of uh, paranoia so there's a lot about like anti-imperialism in here. There's a lot of Marxism in here, way more Marxism in this film than I think would have been allowed in the U.S. in the 60s at the same time. There's a great line where somebody says, like, your crime was that we're poor and you wanted us to stay poor, which I think is a, a really, really wonderful line from this particular film. But it does have a lot of those like hallmarks of a Western. Most of it takes place in the Mexican outdoors and these like really beautiful set pieces in the desert, you know, in the mountains and the hills, for an example, there's a lot of horseback riding. I mean, there's a train robbery at the beginning. I don't know if you can get more Western than a train robbery, but it is sort of going against that John Wayne hero stereotype by having two characters who are deeply flawed. And I wouldn't say that they're even anti-heroes. They're just very, one of them's, plays more villain than he does hero and the other one plays more I don't know he's not I guess anti-hero is probably the best way to describe El Chuncho but he's like a very dark anti-hero so there's there's a lot of those types of things going on in this film I have also recently watched Our Flag Means Death which means everything I watch now has homoerotic subtext it was always there it was always there this film I actually think does have a lot of homoerotic subtext um, I'm not just like reading it into this this male friendship because like there's this like really wonderful scene where Tate like they're they've invaded this house they're robbing this house and Tate picks up like a gun like a prized gun and he's like disassembling it and he makes like this very long scene of eye contact with with El Chuncho like and it's very very like I don't know there's a lot of sexual tension there but it's also a lot about you know, like, what do you do for your friend? How do you become friends when you can't really trust each other when you're in this environment where so much is dictated by money and who has it and who doesn't have it? And should money be liberated or should it not? And like, it's, it's all a very interesting 
it's like a mess of all these interesting ideas that works together pretty well, I think. That description at the end really makes me be like, oh, RRR is a Western. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. It's on my list of, uh, it's on my, my film board. It, it's all about male friendship, you know, uh, sort of fighting back against British imperialism in, in, in that case. But, you know, I think that's one thing that separates like the classic American Westerns from the spaghetti Westerns is that outlook in terms of, you know, you're getting this outside view of America, which is, you know, all of the classic Westerns are, are pretty much pro-colonial settler imperialist, however you want to describe it. And then these films are at least exploring that in a way that isn't a foregone conclusion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would say this is even more than exploration. Like, again, like it's not as blatant, perhaps, as it could. It would have been like if this movie was made today. But it's like one of the characters says, like one character actually asks the Tate character, like, why is your government paying both the revolutionaries and the government? Like, why are they playing both sides against each other? And then another character says, well, you know, those Americans, like where their hearts should be is just ice, you know? So there's like a lot of those, you know, types of critiques of the U.S., which I think has to do a lot with the sympathies of the director and with Salvatore Loriani, um, who wrote the original story. It was adapted by Franco Salinas. So he's credited a lot with bringing in like these Marxist ideas into the films that he made. And so I think that that's also a lot of it just gets left in, in a way that I was surprised to just kind of see that it was actual text and not just subtext in this film. Well, just to preface what we're going to talk about next, I think that the way that you've described it, this kind of ties into why I think Westerns have declined in popularity is that their critique of the thing is always going to be more interesting. You know, the thing about pro-America, whether it's Westerns or anything else, is it's just boring. Like, it's good. What else you got? Well, that's it. It's good. It's the same answer that we give to kids when they say, why can't we read a book where good things happen and that's it? I'm like, because that's it. There's nothing to explore. You know, I, I always get the feeling sometimes that some of these Westerns, maybe not the ones that stand out in American film canon, but a lot of the, you know, the next tier down are just very sterile. And I and I get the idea that that's not true, the spaghetti Westerns. I feel like there's always more going on. That's a perception that may or may not be valid, but that's what I've developed over the years. So when you say it that way, I think the other thing I love about spaghetti westerns too is how international and global they are when it comes to their actors. Like they're very interested in bringing in actors from the US and Italian actors, but also there are Mexican actors in this. Uh, Beswick is a American Jamaican actress. Like you have a bunch of different people from different nationalities to the point where a lot of these films were actually redone in several different languages. You would have actors just, you know, reshoot scenes in a different language, basically. And that's that's how you would market these films to a lot of different people. And I think that that works really well for something like A Bullet for the General because it the themes are so much about like not only like Marxism, but also an anti-imperialism, but also like 
what does a revolution actually look like? Like how dirty do your hands have to get in order to accomplish a revolution? Like who, who are the people who are doing this? You know, that, that type of thing. So I think that that works fairly well for the spaghetti and Zapata Westerns. I do recommend a bullet for the general. I recommend it to um, anyone who's interested in anything that I just said, who likes morally complex stories about morally complex people um, or who like the, demythologizing of the western i will say that if i if you are new to the spaghetti western i would start with the dollars trilogy before i would go to this one just because i think the cinematography of the dollars trilogy is a little bit more interesting and a little bit more iconic perhaps than this film is although this film is certainly not lacking in that area but this if you've already seen that and you're looking to expand this is an excellent way to to expand that but yeah, let's get into this conversation about Westerns and like, they were so popular. They dominated the box office and then they sort of waned over the course of like the 60s and the early 70s. And when I was a kid, I don't remember any Westerns being in the movie theater. Like all of the Westerns I grew up with were classic Westerns that my dad, you know, would rent from the from the movie store and would bring home. And I'd seen like, you know, five times. So why do we think the Westerns waned in popularity? I mean, I, I can I can offer an answer, which uh, is television, because mm. the, I feel like the classic American Western migrated to television, you know, in shows like Gunsmoke and Ponderosa and, you know, a million others that <laughs> the Lone Ranger. Bonanza. Yeah, Bonanza. That was the one I couldn't think of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think. Uh, Sam, to something you said earlier around how like they're a little sterile. Like that's how I think of TV westerns. Is like it's very much, you know, who rode into town this week and how do we deal with it? And it's it's the sort of reinforcement of the status quo, which is really easy to do on television. Whereas in a movie, you have to you have to change the status quo. Like you know, it's not it's really hard to do a movie that's satisfying. That's just restoring what where we were at the beginning of the movie. You know, whereas episodes of TV every, you know, Bonanza ran for like I don't know, 10 years or something like that. It, you know, it's really easy to do that sort of episodic storytelling. So I think that I think that's one answer. You know, and I, I think there's a whole generation of filmmakers in there in the 60s and 70s who just weren't interested in sort of doing traditional Westerns. Like there's some like that Jack Nicholson were where they were like you know you get into like acid westerns where they're kind of more in a they're taking the spaghetti western and making them even more dreamlike and abstract and sort of playing around with that because you can still do a western on a low budget in california in the 60s and 70s and basically kind of do your indie take on a western and you know but in terms of the studio stuff you know we got the the western started to become other genres so we got you know, Jaws and Star Wars and all these things that draw on the Western, but are, you know, sort of repackaging it in a way that feels fresh and exciting. Yeah. I mean, sci-fi is a really good answer. You know, where did the, what, what happened? Well, they didn't go anywhere. They just became sci-fi. Right. But the dinosaurs became birds. Yeah. (laughs) Tessa, you missed uh, the, the just barely missed that, mini revival 
that happened in the late 80s into the early 90s. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about that is is one of the more noteworthy Westerns that happened in the 80s is actually the Young Guns duology, which is we'll put Brat Pack or Brat Pack adjacent. We'll put the Lost Boys into the Westerns and we'll put like, you know, like cool music behind it. You know, you can't just tell the traditional Western because it's we've moved on. You know, if you're going to ask somebody to sit in a movie theater for a while, it better be interesting. And so, I mean, movies like, you know, Dances with Wolves came out and Unforgiven and Tombstone, which were, you know, successful, especially in the latter two kind of retellings of things we're familiar with. But Kevin Costner turned around and made a movie, Wyatt Earp, thinking Westerns were back and they weren't. It was just something that it was the novelty, which is why True Grit was successful. Sure, it's a good movie, but it's a novelty. The other thing, another thing that happened, and Kevin Costner's actually a really good example of this, is that post-apocalyptic story also became a Western. And that's very close to sci-fi too. But Kevin Costner was like, what if we take the sci-fi apocalyptic story and make it as close to a Western as possible? And he tried it twice. He tried it with Waterworld and The Postman. And people aren't having it. The point is, when it comes to Westerns, you have to be really, really careful in telling that story. And so you have somebody now, probably the most recent successful example is uh, Chloe Zhao, who said, I'm going to not make a Western. I'm going to aesthetically make a Western, but it's going to be about this new, quote unquote, frontier. And we didn't like that movie. But I think what she's doing is that. You know, yeah. it's these new riffs on Westerns in a way. But we also have Power of the Dog, which was a hugely popular movie last year, which I would say probably everybody has... everybody but Sam Elliott. <laughs> to everyone but Sam Elliott. I would say, though, that Power of the Dog probably has more in common with a spaghetti Western than it does with the classic Westerns as well. So is that an answer as to why they're coming back in recent years? Like I'm the best I'm Westerns curious. are made by not Americans. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Quite yeah, possibly. Well, I mean, Kelly Reichardt is American. Um, and, you know, and, and she's done Meeks Cutoff and First Cal, which are also sort of these like, you know, Western revivals that are very self-aware of the genre, but the but the movie isn't self-aware at the same time. Like it walks this very fine line between very much understanding, knowing what it's about and the context around it, but without sort of breaking the fourth wall about it, you know. And to me, Power of the Dog especially feels feels like the noir flavored westerns that we were talking about uh. earlier, because you have that sort of like you know, that menace and that threat and the psychological drama that you know I really associate with noir, but very much in you know, the Western space, um, you know, and, and similar to Brokeback Mountain. And I think a lot of those nineties Westerns, it was, it was like a, it was, it itself was sort of a nostalgia fueled wave. Like it was like, Oh, isn't this a fun throwback more than we really like these movies. We like the idea of these movies. Well, I think, you know, in most, maybe not so much the power of the dog, but you know, the other movies you were just mentioning, I think there's a lot more, I, I think it's interiority. I think that's what I want to say. You know, you think about like First Cow, you don't get that big cinema scope 
you know, uh, thing that you're used to with Westerns. And, you know, Brokeback's got some of that, but I really feel like it's more interested. The film is more interested in what's happening in interiors, both the interior of, you know, the, the people involved, but also, you know, there's like so many scenes in that little house. You know, and I and and sure, westerns have interior scenes. I'm not saying they don't, but it feels like the interest is somewhere else, even in those, you know, kind of newer westerns. Well, and when I think about First Cow and Power of the Dog, I do think about deconstruction of the western as well, because Power of the Dog is so interested in demythologizing the the cowboy. Right? Um, what is the name? Henry, what's the name of the guy oh, he no. keeps mentioning? Bronco Henry. Bronco, Bronco Henry, Henry, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you think <laughs> about the way that his adoration of Bronco Henry is just completely skewered in that film. And then First Cow, even though it's not as satirical in its nature, like you said, it's it doesn't have necessarily that satire to it. Just watching that movie made me feel like I was going to catch dysentery and die like it was like that you know like that like this place is not a romantic place to live this place was really difficult to actually survive in especially if you were a person of color or you were poor and so like you know that movie even though it wasn't satirical it still does that work of being like no like this is this wasn't just all like fun gunfights and and you know chasing cows around and stuff you know it was it was also just like trying to survive every day so, you know, I think that that maybe is part of why we're we're getting more interest in this genre recently is because people are starting to turn a more critical eye on it, perhaps. I mean, to me, you know, a, a neo-Western is to me a Western that is at least engaging with being critical of American expansion in some way, shape or form, or also expanding the definition about who we tell Westerns about you know, who are the central characters? So like First Cow being a great example, you know, we have characters of color who are, you know, at least one of the main protagonists. You have Meek's Cutoff, which is, you know, uh, the main characters are, are women. And that's, you know, a, that's like a wagon train movie also by Kelly Reichardt. And the main characters are all female, you know, or Power of the Dog, where you have, you know, there's a queer element to the story at the very least. You know, I think to me, that's what makes a a neo or revisionist Western is taking that deeper look of like what was really going on and what kinds of stories can we tell about people who were not at the center of the classic American Western. What an opportunity to segue. Yeah, this is actually, (laughs) we've been doing great on transitions on this, on this particular episode. But yeah, Sam, you watched something that I've seen classified as a neo-Western. You watched the first season of the show Yellowstone, which was from 2018. That's when it began. To To now. now. To now. It is not finished. Yes, it is now a Yellowstone expanded universe. (laughs) Yeah, there are several spinoffs. This show show has been extremely successful, especially when you consider it was a show originally airing on the Paramount Network. Which I know what you're thinking. What's the Paramount Network? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the right question to ask. So tell <laughs> us a little bit about Yellowstone, the basic premise, and why you chose it. Um, so, okay. So um, Yellowstone is a project that was in gestation for a long time, created by Taylor Sheridan, 
you might recognize that name probably from Yellowstone. But Taylor Sheridan is the brains behind Sicario, Hell or High Water, which is, of course, nominated for Best Picture, and Wind River, which Sheridan sees as a trilogy of movies. And, you know, he is clearly, if you've seen any of those three movies, you know that this person is clearly invested in the idea of what is the West? What is, and what does it mean to make a Western with whatever that new definition is? And and all three of those movies, and I've only seen Hell or High Water, which I felt honestly a little meh about the first time I saw it. But now that I know it sits in the middle of these other two movies, I'm like, eh, maybe I'll give it another shot. But so it took him five years to get this Yellowstone project off the ground. And what really got it there was Kevin Costner, right? <laughs> so um, Kevin Costner plays the main character, uh, the patriarch of the Dutton family who owns the Dutton Yellowstone Ranch in Montana. And so this is who, this goes back to the question of whose story is being told. A, a, a neo-Western could be telling the Western from the other side, but what Taylor Sheridan wants to do is say, there's more than two sides to most stories, you guys. So there's really a three-sided conflict that's explored in this. The first is Dutton's family has, quote-unquote, of course, owned the land for years. And once you've worked the land and done this much, what is your right to that land when it was originally stolen? And, of course, the, the, another side of that conflict is the Broken Rock Reservation and, and their chief, who's a new chief, Chief Rainwater, and he is representing that side to say, well, it doesn't matter how long you've been working it. You people stole it, and it's ours. And so, you know, but to complicate it even further... The third side of this conflict is the outside world, basically personified by developers and politicians. So you have the governor of Montana is a character in the show. There's a developer trying to build residential, you know, like subdivisions. And so, you know, it's like, whose land is this? It's the new Western Western expansion, but we haven't even got finished litigating the old one yet and through the first season you know it's very easy to watch this show and think of it as like conservative propaganda I don't think it is I think it's we don't know what the answers are and they're not as clear-cut as you probably think other than the westward expansion people are bad just like they were back then (laughs) I think we're pretty clear on development equals bad (laughs) What made you interested in the show, especially since you historically are not attracted to the Western as a genre? I feel like you know the answer to this, right? Oh, it's Kevin Costner, It's Kevin right? Costner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this, uh, this, I, I do have to say that the, the show is very well cast and very well acted. Some names you might recognize, uh, Cole Hauser, Danny Houston. Told you John Houston John was going to come back. Fame? Of John Houston yeah. fame and lineage. <laughs> There too. Uh, Ryan Bingham shows up about midway through the first season. And you may or may not know who Ryan Bingham is, but if you know, or I guess if you don't know, 
Ryan Bingham is a, uh, you call him country music or Americana. I'm sure he would answer to either one. He is Oscar winning Ryan Bingham because he won the Academy Award for uh, his song from the film Crazy Heart. The song was called The Weary Kind. So, I mean, there's there's just good work being done all around here. So, but yeah, the answer is Kevin Costner, right? And so, you know, this is somebody that I've 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 kept up with for quite a while. Interestingly, I just want to drop this little fun mumble fact. So Kevin Costner was in Wyatt Earp, which was a box office bomb, but I it's pretty decent, I think. But the actor who played young Wyatt Earp is uh, Ian Bowen, who is a regular in the background of Yellowstone. I, I just think that's, I think that's fun really, little connection it's a little there. fun mumble fact. So, did you like it? Like, what, what did you think of it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's so good. What makes it good? It is, it is the show that everybody but you aren't watching, and you should. <laughs> and I say that because... This we had this discussion, I think, uh, around pop culture when the ranch came out on Netflix initially. It was the show that everybody who didn't live on a coast was watching, and why aren't you? That was the discourse. I remember that. I feel like this is very similar. I can definitely recommend this more than I could the ranch, although we watched that. I just like I said before, I think the story that they're trying to tell as far as you know who has the right it's very interesting they take great pains they film in montana and utah and apparently as of season 4 it's just montana like they're trying to be as respectful of the location as possible and the other thing about the show is it's very much a family drama which is why i compare it to succession this is good succession or succession is bad yellowstone depending on how you feel my hate for Succession is, of course, legendary. <laughs> the premise of the show is fine. The acting is fine. I hate it. I don't care about these people, and I'm not going to schadenfreude these people. I hate them. I wish they would die in a fire. End of episode. But you like Yellowstone. I like Yellowstone because the main tropes of Succession are trying to keep a family business alive. Who's Who... Who is owed what within the family? There's even a cousin Greg character. Uh, John has four kids as of the pilot. He has the would-be oldest son who would be the inheritor. You have uh, an ill-behaved daughter, a, a, an effete lawyer, which of course drives the masculine John crazy. And... Again, I, I've said it twice in this episode, so you have to blank both out. But the youngest child is the fuck up, the prodigal son, who lives on the reservation with his wife and son. Like, well, the worst thing you could do to this ranch family is side with the indigenous people, which he does. But of course, he's the one that his father loves the best. Duh. Right? I mean, all of these things play out in a much more interesting way than succession. That is absolutely fair. I it have seen fair. neither, so I don't have any opinion. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, this this it's been wildly successful. Uh, there are four seasons. They are going strong into a fifth season, which because 
most people are watching it on a streamer, has been expanded and split into two parts. Thanks, HBO. Thanks, Sopranos. <laughs> Ruining it for everybody. Anyway. But it's also expanded into a spinoff. 1883, starring Tim and Faith. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. Plus Sam Elliott. A season of that has already aired. That is on Paramount+. Plus. Not to be confused with the Paramount Network or Peacock, where Yellowstone flagship show streams. I have to admit, when you originally said you were going to watch Yellowstone, I thought you were watching the 1883 <laughs> one. Like, I wasn't aware of the original flagship one. I had just seen all the previews for with Sam Elliott in them, so who, I of told course, you, is a big Western staple. Right, and so I told you about this the other day. The really interesting thing that Taylor Sheridan is doing is... He, he recently said, I only think 1883 is one season because what he's interested in doing is showing these like little look-ins, these little limited glimpses into the lives of the Duttons throughout history, which is a really cool idea. What better thing to do for a show that's asking these questions than to go back and look? And yeah. so the next one that's about to come out, it was 1932. But now it's 1923, so they can do Prohibition. 1923 is going to star Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. That's how successful is Yellowstone that, is. Is that how is. we got Harrison, Harrison Ford to Ford, do TV? <laughs> the laziest actor of all time is going to do a TV show. TV shows famously require more work. Like, maybe not like an actor prepares work. But time on set. Doesn't he own a ranch in Montana also? So I feel like his commute will at least be shorter. That explains it. That, that must explain it. But the question is, is will <laughs> since we had Tim and Faith, is Callista going to show up in 1923? That's a good question. Are we going to get Ally McBeal Western Edition? I would hey. watch that show. I would. I'd get Greg German back. Yeah, it'd be a good time. There is a third spinoff. Apparently, I watched the first season, as you know, but in the fourth season, there is apparently the, a backdoor pilot for a show. It's four sixes. It's six, 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 but it's stylized as four sixes, which is a real ranch in Texas. So not only doing the world of the Duttons through time, but also geographically expanding into another uh, locale that has a very Western heavy troubled tradition, I feel. So, I mean, there's like, I, what, we've been promised eight seasons of television at the minimum? <laughs> promised or delivered on. So would you recommend Yellowstone to anyone? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Who yeah. Who would you recommend you're, this to? You're, well, I mean, if you're, if you're, um, listen, if you're, <laughs> I, I want to say this very nicely, but I won't. If you're too smug. For Yellowstone, just watch Succession. Okay. Everybody else should watch Yellowstone. <laughs> All right. If, Megan, if you heard that, I'm sorry. <laughs> you should watch Yellowstone, though. You'd like it. Our get our famous conflict between Sam and our one of our guests, Megan, on the quality of Succession. All right. I loved this conversation. This was a great episode. I love Westerns, and I love talking about them. Next week, our second guest host takes the mic. Jack assigns us three of his personal film canon in a Jack Assigns episode. I'm very, very excited about that as well. 
All right. Where can you find us? Ryan, where can people find you? Uh, sure. You can find uh, me most often on on and in MovieJohn. Uh, so at MovieJohn.com, I'm the uh, managing editor for our website. Uh, I actually do a monthly column about Westerns, uh, and I just turned in uh, 1,800 words on the man who shot Liberty Valance and the Supreme Court today. Uh, so that'll be out by the time that you are listening to this. Uh, so I've been doing a monthly Westerns column there, among other you know, film reviews. We have a bunch of features. Uh, Movie John is also a quarterly print zine, uh, and our newest issue is just hitting mailboxes right now. Uh, I believe there are still copies left to order. Um, each quarterly print issue has a theme. This theme for the summer is The Great Outdoors. So I actually wrote about uh, Kelly Rickard's Old Joy uh, and Masculinity, which was super fun. Uh, but there's a ton of great articles in that all around that central theme. Uh, so you can order that also through moviejohn.com or through our Patreon. Uh, and then if you want to find me personally, you can look up, look me up on Twitter or Letterboxd at Silber whatever. That's with a B. Yeah, we just got, got our copy and we're very excited to read it. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And Ryan just reminded me to say something I forgot during the episode, so I'm going to. You know I love the man who shot Liberty Valance. The other Western, the other classic Western that I can recommend is one that my grandfather said, you have to watch. And he only said that about one movie. And that movie is Cat Baloo. Starring the great Lee Marvin and Jane Fonda. Good time had by all. It is a Western Cat comedy. Cat Baloo is a good time. It is a good time. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa and on Letterboxd under the same name. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also find us at our second weekly podcast, Tessa Watches Lost. Those come out on Thursdays. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay!